The institutions that have made real progress, the main thing they have is consistency and care. You don't need to have a ton of money or have been around for a long time or have legacy donors. It's probably better if you don't. The main thing you have to do is focus on it, keep focusing on it, and care about it. And that's harder than it sounds. Hi, I'm Tim Schneider, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Inside the art world, one of the defining narratives of the past decade has been a renewed push for gender and racial equity. Much of the attention in this realm has focused on the dramatic overrepresentation of white male artists in everything from museum collections and exhibition programs to auction sales and gallery rosters. Overtures to correcting the imbalance have been so prevalent in trade media headlines, institutional marketing, and day-to-day conversations that many, if not most, art professionals seem to feel confident that the industry is slowly but steadily reversing generations of deeply embedded racism and sexism. But how much has the art world really rebalanced the scales? It turns out that the answer is much less than we hoped, at least if we look past the hype at the actual data. Enter the latest edition of the Burns-Halperin Report, a multi-pronged, data-led project helmed by Charlotte Burns, the veteran art journalist, podcaster, and founder of Studio Burns, and Artnet News executive editor, Julia Halperin. At the core of the Burns-Halperin Report is a -a one-of-a-kind database encompassing hundreds of thousands of entries painstakingly compiled from U.S. museums, global auction houses, and top commercial galleries. The data quantifies how little has changed for artists in three historically underrepresented demographics since as far back as 2002. It also leaves the rest of us facing a lot of hard questions about why the art trade at large believes it's doing so much better at neutralizing its biases than it actually is. On this week's episode, Charlotte and Julia join me to walk us through the report itself, how it came together, and what it all means. Charlotte Burns, thank you for joining us on The Art Angle. Thank you for having me, Tim. And Julia Alperin, welcome back to The Art Angle. It's good to be back. Always a pleasure. So this is a fascinating project that you two have created, produced, and I want to divide the conversation into two pieces. First, I want to talk about the origins and the process of creating the report. And second, I want to talk about the findings themselves and what they tell us about the current state of the art industry. So on part one, then, there's a huge difference between choosing to investigate ethnic and gender imbalance in the art industry in some way and choosing to investigate it like this. Can you just tell us a little bit about what drove you to to embark on this massively ambitious data project? Well, like all good inadvertent five-year-long projects, it began in a bar. Julia and I met for a drink and we were talking about a lot of headlines at the time. This is 2018. And they were saying it's a great moment to be a Black American artist. Because there'd been a spate of auction records, there'd been some major exhibitions like the Kerry James Marshall show at the Met and LA Mocha. And there was this perception in the media that it was a really great moment. We were discussing it and sort of saying, can this really be the case? And I remember saying to Julia, do you want to 
do a data study because Julie had done this before when we were colleagues at the art newspaper. She'd done this great data study looking at museum exhibitions. I was looking at the prevalence of artists represented by mega galleries in museum exhibitions. So I was like, Julia, let's do a data study. It can be like gym buddies, but with data. And that way we'll hold each other accountable and we'll figure out a system for doing it. So it started off just as a simple, let's write an article together with some data. And we didn't really know what we were getting into. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more because the three of us all work with data pretty frequently. And I think it's pretty safe to say that the average person who reads this stuff even doesn't necessarily understand that the data didn't really exist in this case until the two of you got involved with it, meaning that it wasn't accessible in any kind of centralized, standardized way. So what was the process of collecting and organizing all this data like, and how much harder did it end up being than you anticipated it was going to be? <laughs> I think it's probably <laughs> safe to say if we knew how hard it was going to be, we may not have started. I think yes. ignorance was key to our willingness to jump in. And naivety. Yes. Even now, we remain constantly overly optimistic about everything, and then we're constantly surprised by the numbers, how long things take. We don't seem to become better informed about time management. No. And you're right. Museums didn't collect this data when we first started. That has since changed for some of them. But nobody was really tracking their acquisitions in terms of representation in the way that we were asking. And we really tried to structure what we were looking at based on what we thought museums could deliver to us. So something narrow enough that they could provide it. And so we asked probably 40 or 50 museums each time and a certain number said yes. They would go through their acquisitions and kind of filter for us based on the definitions we provided. How many were by Black Americans and later how many were by women. Even the fact that it didn't exist in any form, that was one thing. And then the fact that it didn't exist in a consistent form across the museums was another huge thing. This is a very data nerd point, but one museum might call an artist Julia K. Halperin, and another would call her Julia Halperin. And if you're doing a data project, those are two entirely different people until you either add or get rid of the middle initial. And multiply that by 350,000, which is like the number of objects that we have. And you can see why it took so long. Also, because the data doesn't exist, people have to do it themselves. It's not really very iterative in its current form. And it also means that it's very, very easy for one or two rogue names to creep in. And so every edition of the data set, one of the most, I'm sure, Julia, you'll agree with this, one of the most depressing moments for us is when we sit and we do a final clean, which we always call a final clean, even though there's another 500 to come. And we'll realize that there are some rogue names in there that shouldn't be in there. And they will fundamentally shift the entire database. So this year, we were checking to see whether the market for female identifying artists had outgrown the market for Pablo Picasso, because in our previous edition, it had not. And we were like, oh, wow, the market for women's got bigger than Picasso. That's so great this year. And then as we were reorganizing the data and filtering it in different ways, we realized that three men had made it into the list. Ed Ruscha, George Bazalitz, and Juan Gris. And the 
Baselitz was especially gutting because, of course, Baselitz said the market doesn't lie, women can't paint. Taking those three men out of the data set brought the entire market value down by around $500 million and bought the entire market for all female artists across all genres and all periods of time back under Picasso. Just three names. So the cleaning is frustrating because literally three names can change the market by that size or the acquisition numbers by that size. Because fundamentally, the data sets that we're looking at are so small that they can be shifted by one Ed Ruscha, one Basilitz. Now, this is the third edition of the Burns Halpern Report, and each one has been a little bit different than the last. Just so our listeners have the context, what was the focus of the first report versus the second report before we even get into what you've produced this time? The first time we looked at Black American artists from 2008 to 2018 across 28 museums. And the second edition, we looked at female identifying artists from 2008 to 2019 across 26 museums. And in doing those data sets, we realized that for this edition, we wanted to make consistent the museums and we wanted to make consistent the questions. There are just things we learned along the way by getting it wrong that we wanted to try and get right this time. So we realized we should have consistency between the data sets, between the museums we ask. There are certain questions we didn't ask the first time that an artist pointed out to us a second time when we were talking to them about their figures. They said, well, are you looking at whether it's a gift or a purchase by the institution? How is the work entering the museum? And we hadn't been asking that. So there were certain questions like that that we wanted to bring in and make the data set more robust. Because what we realized is that our definitions are flawed and difficult. But actually, if we want to expand the data set in any way going forward, we're going to need to build a kind of interactive database that can be layered to bring in other identities and categories as well. Got it. So from the standpoint of people who are going to be using the database, your perspective was, we want to make this more robust, more consistent, easier to use. Just in terms of the overall scope of this thing, I think you said earlier 350,000 objects are now in the database. Is that it? Or like, what else is there beyond that? We realized the failing of the second edition is that the two data sets didn't talk to each other. We couldn't look at the two data sets in parallel. We could deduce a figure to look at Black American female identifying artists, but we couldn't drill down into that data. We could just get a percentage from an overlap number. And so we wanted to look more closely at intersections. So it's three distinct data sets for the museum database from 2008 to 2020. We're looking at Black American artists, female identifying artists, and Black American female identifying artists across 31 museums, nine of which were not previously in our other studies because we were a little bit too coastal before and we wanted to make sure that we had a broader geographic diversity in the data. Like Julia said, it's almost 350,000 objects, 6,000 exhibitions. And then there's the market data, obviously, which moves from 2008 to mid-2022. That's international auction data. We also have data from galleries. We approached four of the biggest galleries, Hauser, Zwerner, Pace, and Listen, and asked them to break down their representation and revenue proportionally. And we also have commissioned way more writers this time and brought in a lot more opinion pieces because what we realized is that if we were trying to contextualize things the first couple of goes around, 
it would just be important this time to centre people who are making change, who are grappling with those issues and really focus it on them and their voices as opposed to the voices of people who are going, well, is it really that bad? Have you guys considered this? Maybe there's just fewer female artists in the world. I think your data is getting it wrong. So we're not really trying to convince people of the data because we figure if you don't know by now that there's a problem, you probably haven't been paying attention. We more wanted to focus it on how to get to change. So in a way, it's become more of an advocacy project. That seems like a great way to segue into what this advocacy project actually says in terms of the data itself. So I want to go category by category through the three groups that you mentioned. But before we do that, how would you summarize the grand takeaway of the new study as a whole? I think it is that our perception of progress outpaces reality by a great deal. I think this whole exercise has really, for us, been a lesson in not taking a sentiment analysis as truth, not taking totemic events or high-profile examples as emblematic of structural change. And I think it's just sort of made me not trust myself in a way I think is actually quite valuable. And I think if we can get other people who are easily swayed by sentiment to question that, it will be successful. Okay, so let's dig into the findings about female identifying artists first. So on the institutional side, your data set consisted of acquisitions and the exhibition programs of 31 U.S. museums between the years of 2008 and 2020. So what proportion of those acquisitions and exhibitions were focused on the work of female identifying artists? Acquisitions are around 11%. So it falls dramatically short of women's actual population in America. Exhibitions are 14.9%. So we see that exhibitions are always slightly ahead because it's where curators probably have a little bit more sway. They don't have to use special funds. They don't have to get things through acquisition committees. And also, if you want to be a little more cynical about it, sometimes it's a way to signal change that isn't necessarily entering the museum itself. Right. And so those are aggregate numbers for the entire sample period. How is the acquisition rate in particular fluctuated from year to year? Like, are there any signs of progress if you just say, oh, we're only going to isolate this down to the past two, three years, five years, whatever it might be? So I think one of the most shocking facts to people is that acquisitions at museums of work by women actually peaked in 2009, and it has been downhill from there. But it is true that you see an uptick as you get a bit closer to the present. And there are signs that social movements can have ripple effects on collecting. So even though acquisitions peaked in 2009, they started to approach that level again in 2017 and 2018, which notably is after the Me Too movement took hold. And you also see that exhibitions of female identifying artists increased slowly to a high in 2018. And even though they fell slightly in 2019 and 2020, they were still higher than when we started out in 2008. Okay, so there is an argument that there are at least some glimmers of progress or like more sustained progress perhaps than this spike that you had in the first decade of the 21st century. 
I don't know that I'd call it progress. I think that what happens is there are these big social moments like Me Too. It's back to Julia's point about perception, that people talk about them as being seismic and saying, you know, there's a before and after. We're in a post-Me Too world. Actually, what we see is that there are a couple of years of slightly increased activity and it doesn't bed in and it isn't dramatic. It's just that it maybe feels dramatic to people because it's different, but it remains different. It remains an outlier. It's not consistent growth by any stretch of the imagination. So it's more that there is an immediate impact created by external social movements. And then it sort of ebbs away again. Yeah, I think that was one of the key takeaways for us looking at the numbers is that you do see these moments of change, but I think we think that that raises the sea level forever. And in fact, that doesn't seem to be the case. I don't know if you want to go so far as to say that there's a performative quality to some of it, but it does seem to be like highly responsive to short-term events in the larger cultural context. It's reactive and it's sort of immediate rather than absorbed and permeating, creating systemic change. It's more faddish is a ruder way of putting it. Staying with female identifying artists, but switching to the market side of the equation, the study also examines auction results from 2008 to the middle of 2022. So what share of total auction sales came from works by female identifying artists? 3.3% of the overall auction market. Also bad. Yeah, worse than museums, obviously. Yeah, which is surprising to me, I guess, just because of the fact that museums have so many more layers of bureaucracy, and I would think that it would be harder to implement change in a broader sense, whereas in a market context, if you're a collector who wants to buy something, you just buy it. You don't necessarily have to get it approved by anybody else. The one thing that I find really interesting about the auction market data is that the auction market as a whole is an extremely superstar-driven place to do business, where you have a small minority of artists who are making up an outsized chunk of sales year after year. How strong is that dynamic if you just look at the subset of works by female identifying artists at auction? Like, is it more extreme than if you're dealing with all artists or just male artists? Is it less extreme? What's the scenario? It's a lot more extreme. You see the superstar effect across the market, but its magnitude's more acute when we look at the market for female artists. So the top five artists at auction, Kusama, Joan Mitchell, Louise Bourgeois, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Agnes Martin, account for 2.4 billion of the total, which is almost 40% of the entire market. So those five artists account for that outsized market share. If you compare that to the overall art market, the top 20 artists in the overall market account for less than 30% of all sales. So it's a real difference. And at the current rate of growth, women's total sales in the auction market won't approach 50% till the year 2053. That's a shocking fact to me. But I guess it shouldn't be at this point, especially since I've read the two previous editions of the report, but here we are. Anytime that we're trying to drill down into data, it's important, obviously, to look at potential extenuating circumstances. And in this case, I know that women represent about half of the U.S. population. 
Do they also account for about half of all working artists, or is there some kind of disparity in the gender participation rate in this particular field that could account for some of the imbalances that we're talking about here? So that's something we hear a lot is, sure, women are collected at a fifth of the rate that they should be in terms of the population, but maybe there are just fewer female artists. And we know from other studies that have been done that there has been parity in graduation rates from the Yale School of Art, which is the country's top art school since 1983. So we know that women have been entering the highest levels of the professional art world for almost 40 years. And one interesting thing we found when we were working on this study and looking at that research a little bit more closely is that there had also been parity in the 1940s, but rates then fell backwards for several decades. So you really can see the cyclical nature of this sort of thing and the fact that there was parity well before 1983 as well, and it is not reflected in work that made it into the art system. Before we move on to the next category of artists, I do want to just spend a moment talking about the commercial gallery side of this. I was really happy that you were able to actually get some data from some dealers. So on that front, what did you find in the dealer market about this particular subset of artists that you're concerned with? So we found that the commercial gallery system is definitely further along than the auction market. The four top galleries that provided us with their information, Listen, Hauser & Worth, David Warner, and Pace, represented between 23% and 39% female artists. So obviously, that's still a ways off from 50%, but it's better than you see in the auction market or the museum world. And the other thing we thought was quite interesting is that these artists outperformed in terms of sales. So they represented between 26% and 52% of galleries revenue. And I think that's something that people who have worked in any world as a minority or underrepresented group can recognize that in order to break in, you have to overperform. And so I think it's not a coincidence that we see that here. So let's move on to the data about Black American artists. First, within those 31 U.S. museums that we've been talking about, how did Black American artists fare in terms of acquisitions and exhibitions? 2.2% of acquisitions and 6.3% of exhibitions between 2008 and 2020 were of work by Black American artists. So those numbers are still really small. And how does that compare to the proportion of Black Americans in the larger population? First, I will say that data is quite hard to find, but we did find a 2014 analysis of U.S. census data that found that 8% of working artists in the United States were Black. Okay. So if we want to take that study at face value, then Black American artists are still underrepresented in the context of the art world, or at least in the institutional world so far. Correct. You found in the data that institutional collecting and exhibiting of the work of Black American artists peaked in 2015. Now, on one hand, it seems like that dovetails with what you were talking about earlier in terms of 
broader social movements being able to have this at least short-term effect on behavior in the institutional world, right? Yeah, it is and it isn't. Again, you see that impact of broader social movements. So the biggest jump took place between 2014 and 2015, when acquisitions of work by Black American artists spiked almost 200% following the founding of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013. But it's also random. 2015 is the peak year for acquisitions. That's largely due to the National Gallery of Arts acquisition of the Corcoran Collection, rather than a growth across institutions systemically. Right. So and that's another example of the fact that the numbers that we're working with are so small in the grand scheme of things that one institution essentially having a major change in its strategy for acquisitions can really take a year that is otherwise maybe not so remarkable and make it look like a major sea change. Exactly. Now, I don't want to necessarily talk about progress for the reasons that we mentioned earlier, but from an institutional standpoint, what changes have we seen in the data with this demographic of artists in the time since 2015? So you do see that even though the numbers don't surpass 2015, they do approach it and it's much more widely distributed. So in 2017, which is the second highest year for acquisitions of work by Black American artists, the total is raised by a number of institutions committing and acquiring more work. And so I think that is a sort of key difference is it's less of a fluke and a bit more of a sector-wide shift, even though it's still really limited. And then on the market side of the equation, my takeaway from looking at the data is that it seems like it's kind of a good news, bad news situation when it comes to sales of works by Black American artists. What would you say is the good news there and what's the bad news? I'd say all of it with a kind of caveat that we can see growth is the kind of ostensible good news. The same is true with female artists, that there are areas where we see growth. But when you look at where the growth is, it raises questions about our definition of progress and good. Is it speculation? And is that good? Is it sustainable investment? These are really different things when it comes to the auction market, as opposed to museum acquisitions. And we don't really know the answers to it. But if you're looking at the market just as a sheer financial mechanism, there is growth. Art by Black American artists account for 1.9% of all auction sales between 2008 and mid-2022. 3.6 billion of the total 187 billion. Considering that Black Americans are 0.6% of the global population, and we're looking at a global market, that is an overperformance in terms of market share. But again, I would caveat that with the fact that the market is so driven by America. We're looking at Black Americans. The market is very heavily driven by contemporary art. And so if you are a contemporary artist, you would probably overperform in the global auction market. So that's the heavily caveated good news. And the bad news is that the superstar market that we talked about earlier with female artists is even more the case with Black American artists. If you take away Jean-Michel Basquiat, the biggest superstar of all, the market spend drops from 3.6 billion to just over 1 billion. So it's extremely unequally distributed. And you see this fall away after that, that you have Basquiat, then you have another kind of five artists, and then you have another kind of 10 artists. And then there's, you know, maybe 10 more. And this is just drop off gets more and more extreme. The top five artists within the Black American artist at auction category account for 83.9% of that total market. So you really see that concentration in value. The auction market is interested in a few people. 
Right. And I'm assuming that part of what's happening here is that we're dealing with small groups in each one of these categories. There's only a few women that the auction market, broadly speaking, is interested in. There's only a few black American artists that the auction market is interested in. But because the group of black American artists is probably smaller than the group of women, the superstar effect ends up playing out even more. It's again, that kind of concussive effect that you can get from dealing with small numbers. Yeah. And it's also that the breakdowns of the group are kind of different. When you look at the top artists in museums and the market, they're old, very old or dead. Whereas when you look at the market for black American artists overall, it's much more focused on contemporary artists and it's more volatile. It goes up and down more with broader economic fluctuations. So the market for female artists overall is just less heat. There's less energy around it. So it doesn't seem to move up and down as much when the market goes up and down. The market for black American artists goes down further than the broader market in those moments of downturn. It doesn't go up higher, but it does go down further. Sticking with the market side, but moving to the private sector of the trade, what did you find when you talked to those same four major galleries about the Black American artists that they represent? So we found similar trends in that these galleries were outperforming both the museum sector and the auction sector, and that inside these artists were outperforming in terms of the sales that they were delivering. So Black American artists represented between 4.2% and 7% of these galleries' stables. And again, I mean, that's still less than the information we have about the population of Black American artists in the United States, but it's better than elsewhere in the art world. And as is the case with female artists, they overperform when it comes to sales. So they account for between 12 and 30% of revenue. I do have a follow-up question about this, which is that we're talking about data from four major galleries. Were those the only four galleries that you approached about this or were they just the only four that got back to you? We approached five. The reason we didn't go more broadly is because A, we didn't know how much data we would be able to get and handle at that stage. And B, we felt that when you look at the mega galleries who really kind of control the overall market, it would be more representative. There will be other galleries whose numbers are much, much better, who are much, much more committed to diversity in a broader, deeper way. Having said that, everybody tries to sneak in artists that don't actually conform to our definitions. And, you know, we have lots of haggling over it, which isn't to say our definitions are fantastic or the best definitions, but we focused on Black American as a concept as opposed to Black artists, precisely because we felt museums would be able to filter their acquisitions by geography. And so, like Julia said, we kind of tailored it to what we thought was feasible. But we do get a lot of, well, you know, we also did a temporary exhibition with this artist and then we had a brief selling show here with this one and blah, blah, blah. The numbers are so small, again, that people try and prop in like another name here and another name there. It does raise another issue, though, that Julia, you and I have dealt with when we deal with the intelligence reports, which is that it's also just a tricky thing to define people's ethnicities, let alone their genders. It's like if you have a say, an artist who has one parent who grew up in China and another parent who grew up in France, then they are a French-Chinese artist. So do you count them as a European artist, an Asian artist, or both? It's just a difficult thing, but I guess it's not an excuse for not doing the work. It just seems like it's another extenuating circumstance in what is an incredibly complex project. There is a lot of really interesting data research going on. 
And, you know, there's a group of curators in America that are focusing on data more led by artists' self-identities, which is really interesting work. And to some extent, that would be the ideal way to gather data is to have the artist self-identify. But even within that, when you discuss taking that even nationally across America, that means very different things to self-identify in certain states in America as queer, as trans. So to take that more broadly, if you want the data to be international, you know, when we look at female identifying artists, it's an international list. If you're looking at countries in the Middle East, for instance, there are artists who wouldn't identify certain ways. And if you're taking the list forward and backwards in time, when you look at artists from the mid 20th century, we know that a lot of those artists were gay, but they and their heirs do not identify that way. So it's so difficult to try and figure out how to define people, because obviously it's fluid and data isn't fluid. But we try and focus on the art of the possible. We don't think this is the best possible data ever, but we do hope that it is a mark in time and another step on the way to trying to figure out how to do it better. Yeah, I would say we're very aware that that is the flaw that's baked in. The fact that identity is complex and mutable and these numbers do not have room to reflect the complex nature of identity. But I think we feel strongly that some information and sense of where the wind is blowing is better than none. Because if you don't have any somewhat objective sense, you can just be swayed by your own hunches and that that is where problems arise. That's where we started is we realized when we did this data study that when we were talking to people, you know, for all those many years of being a journalist before that, when I would write articles about progress or commission them or edit them or interview or report, essentially what I was doing was asking people how they felt about things, what their emotions were. Did they believe in progress? And the art world tends to believe very strongly in its own progress. And actually, much more so than the general population, the art world really self-identifies as a progressive industry. And it's actually a very conservative industry. It's very slow to change because the systems are built on, you know, systems that are hundreds of years old that are themselves patriarchal and suprematist and all of these things. So kind of grappling with that is an enormous undertaking. And we understand that we're getting it wrong constantly. Even the fact that we point to demographics, as one of our writers points out in our op-eds, well, we know that the Middle Passage resulted in multiple deaths. There have been enormous genocides of native populations, of African populations, of Black American populations. So even when we look at demographics, those figures are flawed. Yeah, that's ultimately the dilemma here is that it is hard and it is always going to be inexact. But the alternative is that you just don't do anything, which for me is not really a good alternative. Let's talk about the third category of artists that you compiled all this data on, and that is Black American female identifying artists. So again, let's start on the institutional side with those 31 museums. How was this group represented in terms of acquisitions and exhibitions? Work by Black American women comprises 0.5% of acquisitions at these 31 museums. And 
Black women represent 6.6% of America's population. So you see that they're underrepresented by a factor of 13. And I think this intersection was really key for us because you can see what happens at the intersection of racism and sexism in a way that you can if you're not looking specifically at where these identities intersect. I just want to drill down on this for a second because I think that sometimes having the actual numbers of things just hits harder than getting percentages. And you write in the report that if you take that percentage, that 0.5% of acquisitions being by works made by Black American female identifying artists, that equates to about 1,800 objects out of 340,000 objects. Yep. Which is just staggering how low that is. It's sad because we're missing out on so much. I just sort of feel if museums are supposed to serve me and the public, that just makes me feel like I'm not being served well. And this ties into something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is that within the report, you pull out some trends in terms of which types of institutions are outperforming the rest of the field when it comes to collecting and exhibiting works by some of these groups. And they seem to be pretty consistent, no matter which one of the groups we're looking at. They're especially, I think, pronounced in this realm of Black American female identifying artists. So like, what were some of those institutional trends that you found in terms of outperformance? Interestingly, this is the only category in which museums are spending their own money, where they are purchasing work as opposed to being gifted the work. That's a real distinction. On the one hand, that seems kind of positive because the museum's already obviously showing a commitment to doing that. On the other hand, you can see that that connection with the art market, that the art market's smaller, the whole entire ecosystem, if you were a Black American female artist, is smaller. There are fewer opportunities in museums and the market. And so therefore, if the market is smaller, there are fewer people collecting your work. Hence, there are probably fewer donations of your work. You see the way that the markets and the museums work in parallel to each other, that they're connected. But budget doesn't determine success. Museums in the $15 million to $20 million budget led those collecting categories. And so it's kind of interesting that it's not necessarily the biggest museums. In fact, it usually is not the biggest museums. That's been consistent through all the years of the data study, that the institutions that are more saddled with legacy issues, legacy donations, legacy ideas are much, much slower to create change. Their menu is not really changing, basically. Having said that, if you do have a big budget and you do decide to make change, like MoMA, we see that MoMA has managed to make a change and MoMA has a big budget. We've seen the same with the National Gallery. So we would encourage those larger museums to make more change because it really would change the numbers. When we're talking about these museums that have this 15 to $20 million budget range for acquisitions, like which types of museums are we talking about? Like, can you give me any names just so the listeners have a sense of which places particularly are outperforming? MCA Chicago is one that we've seen really strong results from and real measurable progress from across the data sets. And that falls into that budget category. Also, an institution like the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts has shown real deliberate investment in collecting work by women and artists of color. 
and the Perez Art Museum Miami also. And I think one thing that's interesting about PAM is that it's a relatively new museum. It doesn't have centuries of collecting history like the Albright Knox in upstate New York or the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we see so often that those museums want to acquire work that already speaks to what's in their collection. One of the things that curators have to do when they write a proposal for an acquisition is explain why it should be at that museum, how it connects to the work that they already own. And so they're having to deal with the weight of their history every time they decide to acquire something. Whereas a museum that's newer, that doesn't have that kind of baggage, may have a little bit more flexibility and openness. And we see that as well with museums on the West Coast. I want to move to the auction market briefly. When it comes to works that were made by Black American female identifying artists, you found that they made up 0.1% of auction sales from 2008 to the middle of this year, which equates to about $204 million, million with an M, out of $187 billion with a B. One thing that was interesting about this to me was that you found that the results for Black American female identifying artists skewed much younger, or at least somewhat younger than the other groups. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that was the case? I think it's the ecosystem. When we looked at our galleries, there was only one of the four galleries that represented more than one Black American female artist. So there's less support in the gallery system. That means there's less support in the market. There's less secondary market activity. So the entire ecosystem is less well supported. It's less robust. There's less institutional support. There's a greater superstar effect. So you see that Julie Moretu kind of powers that market almost single-handedly. So in 2016, for example, auction sales of work by Julie Moretu accounted to just under 80% of the entire market for that category that year. And that's really interesting because Julie's an artist who's using her power and platform to reinvest in the artistic community herself to try and buoy some of that infrastructure. We do see that, especially with Black artists, that there is this real sense of taking matters into their own hands and creating initiatives that are really supportive of other artists, which is a really positive effect of that market growth, that that money is finding its way in the system. It's been diverted, essentially. And we don't know the effect of that. It's a much smaller market. The superstar effect is even greater. There's less interest. It's less stable. There's more speculation. And it all skews younger. Each one of these categories has been progressively smaller numbers, it seems like. And this one, the numbers are the smallest of all. So the flip side to that is that it seems like there's the most potential for dramatic growth here, just because, again, any change can end up being a significant change just based on how little activity there has been historically. So when we're talking about the auction market in particular, like what has the story been in terms of the growth of sales for works by Black American female identifying artists? So we see it has grown more and faster than any other category. If you account for inflation, the amount of money spent on work by Black American female identifying artists at auction has grown well over 500%. We've been really torn about how to present that because the numbers are still so small. 
If you go from having $1 to having $2, that's an 100% increase, but you still only have $2. Yeah. The caveat here as well is like how we view success, how we view progress. You know, we're talking about the market. We're talking about these institutions that are patriarchal and supremacist. So there are other systems outside of this that our data doesn't encompass. And so this is something we really struggle with is that our data really reflects the scarcity and a paucity of futures. And we know that that's not the case. We know that some of the most interesting art is being made by the people who are excluded from these data sets. And so there is a kind of abundance out there that just exists separately to this. So it's by no means reflective of value in art, what makes good art. It's just what these systems are recognizing. And we see that that recognition is flawed. Yeah, I think it's really important to say we are looking at a particular part of the art world, and it's basically the white art world. And so it's already really one monolith, and we're looking at progress and representation within that. And I think we should also note that auction sales are our barometer because it's public information and it's where we can chart some change in the marketplace. But artists themselves don't see any money from these auctions, generally speaking. And so even when we see an increase of 500%, it's the person who owns the work who's seeing that increase and making that money, not the artists themselves. Yeah. And these figures are so small that it's still a handful of sales. Yeah, it's the paradox of looking at auction results or really sales of any kind, ultimately, in the end, where it's just one measure of success in an ecosystem, as you're both saying, that is incredibly complex, has many layers, and that the artists, for the most part, are not necessarily benefiting from in the way that we might like. So again, it's sort of a tricky thing because you want to measure it, it does matter, but also it is only just one piece of the story. Yeah, we would encourage more data from more people, more conversation. You know, hopefully this is a conversation starter, but not just about the fact that these numbers are depressing and that we get stuck there and we get paralyzed on this sense of the small scale, but that we really focus forwards on what's required to make change, who is making change, because we do see that in leadership. Julia just mentioned PAM, the MCA, there's institutions like DIA. We see that a lot of people are trying to make change. So we just need a more robust, honest look at what is working, what isn't working, and to triple down on the things that are having some traction and leave those emotional conversations about perception behind. And I think one thing that I do find encouraging is that the institutions that have made real progress, the main thing they have is consistency and care. You don't need to have a ton of money or have been around for a long time or have legacy donors. It's probably better if you don't. The main thing you have to do is focus on it, keep focusing on it, and care about it. And that's harder than it sounds. It's harder than it sounds, but also the opportunities are there. I mean, one thing that I come away from this, not to be all like market inefficiency guy, but this data shows that there just isn't as much interest, meaning there's not as much competition if you're trying to work with these artists or acquire their work, which means that it should be much more approachable and much more achievable for more institutions, more collectors to be able to do if they want to. And that is, as you're saying, really the key. It's just, do they want to? 
And if so, then we can start to see some actual change. Think about how many incredible, still affordable works exist by artists who are under the top five in any of these categories. That's the other thing is the more equitably distributed price bands for white male artists mean that a lot more of them are out of the question for so many people to acquire, to engage with, to study, to ensure. There is so much still on the table here that is available to enrich our understanding of the art we make in the world we live in. And I think institutions should see that as an incredible opportunity. We see a conservatism in what the museums are buying and in what the market is doing. We see a reluctance to move with what art is being made. That's not being reflected in these numbers. A lot of buyers since sort of early 2000s boom have been newer buyers who are led by data, who are led by Artnet's price database, for instance. And that's always going to tell you what's previously happened. It's kind of like at the floor of the algorithm is that it's always nostalgic. It's always retrograde and retrospective. And so when you're looking at value, and we hear this from curators, people will have to say, well, here's a comparable, here's a comparable, here's a comparable. This idea that you have to compare is a flaw built into our concept of value because we're missing out on these things that we haven't looked at properly in the market or in the institutions. And that kind of dominance of that market conservatism, we see it across the entire art industry. You've given us a lot to think about today. Last question for you both. Where can listeners find the Burns Halpern Report and all of the supplemental material in its orbit? Artnet News is running through the month of December coverage on the report. So that will be the data itself, our write-up of the data, our data visuals, there will be a film. And then we're commissioning a host of reported articles and op-eds that people can read all the way through the month. We're going to be continuously publishing them on both Artnet News and on Studio Burns Media. Perfect. Charlotte, Julia, you've done incredible work. And I just want to say thank you for doing it and for joining us here. You've given everybody a lot to think about. And I think that I personally am grateful for all of it. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for giving us the time, Tim. Thank you so much for having us. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and me, Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.